This episode revisits some parts in our podcast episode, Beyond the Veil, The Secrets of Lori Vallow Daybell, Part 2, originally recorded on April 1st, 2023, published here in July of 2023. As we've been discussing the case of Gypsy Rose and recently interviewed Kate, a survivor of factitious disorder imposed by another previously known as Munchausen by proxy, we felt it was important to re-examine a question many continue to ask us. Did Lori Vallow Daybell also suffer from Munchausen by proxy and was her daughter Tylee Ryan her victim years before Tylee was murdered? Dr. John takes us through the evidence and research exploring this possibility, and we share a chilling moment from Lori Vallow speaking at her own sentencing, where the now convicted mother tells the world just how sick Tylee always was, and how, as her mother, she was the only one who truly took care of Tylee. We also hear a jailhouse call between Lori and her only surviving child, Colby Ryan, as he demands answers from his mom about his murdered siblings. Now, a side note before we begin, if you know of someone that might value our work, please share our podcast as we continue to grow and hope to bring you so much more in 2024. We plan to cover the full trial of Chad Daybell scheduled later this year. And if you want to support our work on a monthly basis or join Dr. John's monthly book club, please sign up at patreon.com slash hidden true crime. We have heard from several people about Tylee always being sick. There's diagnoses, there are multiple diagnoses of pancreatitis, which it seems in these diagnoses to have no clear cause. So the question here becomes, and this is from, by the way, this is from a Guardian ad litem report to the court, July 15th, 2009. I'm just going to quote this. In the same period of time, Tylee was age six. She was diagnosed with pancreatitis, having had two episodes requiring hospitalization between February of 2006 and 2008. There's clear documentation of pancreatitis and many other ailments, back pains that are unex- that are inexplicable, that have no clear cause. This raises the question of whether this is some version of factitious disorder imposed on another, otherwise previously known as Munchausen's by proxy syndrome. Here is Lori speaking about Tylee just before Judge Boyce sentenced her to life behind bars. Tylee suffered horrible physical pain her whole life. I sat with Tylee in the hospital year after year after year while she screamed in pain when the morphine wasn't even enough to take away the pain of her pancreatitis. I sat there while she cried and I held back her hair while she threw up. And I am the only person on this earth who knows how much Tylee suffered in her life. She had pain every single day. She never felt good. Her body did not work right. And I don't know if that was from complications from me dying while she was being born or something else, but she had a very difficult life. Chad Daybell says, this is when Chad was giving Lori a blessing. So Chad refers himself to himself as James. He refers to Lori as Elena in many of these texts. So Chad is is talking to Lori here, writing to Lori. He says, as they stayed in that favorite position, he moved his hands to her head and began to cleanse and purify each part of her body. This is the important part. Quote, he could feel the pains and troubles she had endured throughout her life being removed from her soul and being taken mm-hmm. outside and destroyed. There's some implication there by Chad that 
the pains and trouble she had endured throughout her life. There's some clear reference, some allusion there to abuse. He's not, he's not telling us specifically what it is. We don't know if this is abuse in the family or domestic violence. In any case, making a clear reference here, I think, to abuse. He knows something about trauma she's experienced, and he's using that in this moment to say that he's washing it all away and that he understands. It appears that there are some risk factors for some types of abuse in the Cox family. At the very least, I think we can say that Lori, from a fairly young age when she was married, as a was she married as a teenager? I think it was. She was right. They were boyfriend and girlfriend in high school, and I believe she was still a teenager when they got married. Perhaps eighteen, but yes. Okay, teenager. so, but the point is that whether it's abuse in the family of origin or domestic violence in some of her early relationships, there's there's abuse going on here. So I'm going to go back to Breaking Bad and the rhetoric of evil. This is page ninety four. Ronald Masso. He's referring to a book by a psychoanalyst. Her name is Sue Grant. Sue Grant wrote a really beautifully written book called The Reproduction of Evil. Her arguments are fairly complex. So I'm going to go to Nasso's summary of Grant. Here's what Nasso says about Grant's book. Quote, Sue Grant focuses special attention on the impact of early horrific trauma and the histories of individuals who have broken bad. Inspiring shame and dissociative efforts to preserve sanity Its legacy is a kind of psychic death, leaving some victims unable to connect emotionally with others except through the imposition of suffering. The need to reverse early experiences of helplessness and victimization can unleash horrendous destructiveness. So I I love that quote, by the way. Sue Grant develops that idea in more depth than Nasso, but I love that quote because... This whole notion of psychic death is also related to the idea of an empty self. Psychic death implies the self is largely lost. The self is dead. And in order to bring that self back to life, you fill that hole or that void with abstractions or maybe ideology, whatever. You fill, you're going to fill it with something, I think, to try to fill alive. This is a really powerful idea that perhaps Lori Vallow, pre-Chad Daybell, experiences some type of abuse. Certainly Chad alludes to that. And psychic death, which then, and helplessness, which then leads to behaviors, acting out type of behaviors to inflict harm, to feel more alive. It's hard to know what exactly, what these traumatic experiences are, what the exact abuse is, but we know that there's either descriptions or actual instances of abuse in her background. Again, I think this idea of a false self or a psychic death, I think these things are all related. So you have the type of psychic death, which leads to these feelings of helplessness. And then you probably get some type of attempt to remedy those feelings of helplessness through certain behaviors. And we'll get to that in a second. So this leads us to our next question about Lori, and that is a question about personality disorders. Oftentimes in these types of situations, there's there's actually some fairly recent research showing that there's a possible correlation between childhood trauma and abuse and later borderline personality disorder. Let's put that thought aside. I'm going to read. I'm going to read from a book. This is a classic book about the impact of narcissism on children. 
So the, the Pressman book is about a family, the family, the family system of narcissism. This book is more specifically about adults that have been in, in narcissistic families. It's by Alain Galam. Galam says, and I quote, the narcissistic parent lives on within the mind of the adult, even in the absence of the real parent. A final and tragic irony is that the child of a narcissist may herself have acquired many narcissistic traits up to and including being a full-blooded narcissist. Some common features might include self-centeredness, the compulsive need to be right and to have other people submit to her views, an inability to take criticism, the desire for perfection in self and or others she is close to, hypersensitivity combined with the continuous feeling of being mistreated, an exaggerated need for acclaim and support, and an even more desperate need for reassurance that she is loved. The flip side of the narcissistic family, which is that if you have a self by proxy, it's not unreasonable that the person raised in a narcissistic family then can become a narcissist or at least show some features of narcissism or and, and or other personality disorders. On that front, we have, for example, this is a, a, an evaluation performed by Vivian Lewis. It's actually a, an evaluation on Joe Ryan, but in her diagnostic formulation, she has she does render an opinion about the biological mother, who is Lori. Based on the information she has, she says she that there should be a rule out of histrionic and or borderline issues. So in other, in other words, she's not definitively saying that Lori would receive a diagnosis of histrionic or borderline personality disorder, but she's saying that she thinks it's it's relevant and it could be an issue. In one of our earlier podcasts, I speculated that she had some, perhaps she had some psychopathic features. I may have jumped the gun a little bit on that. I think I was getting a little exuberant in the moment. I don't know for sure if Lori would be a psychopath. I, I do want to say that I think she has some features of psychopathy. I don't know if she would qualify for the diagnosis, but talk about one of the more recent models of psychopathy. I've talked a lot about Robert Hare and his views on psychopathy and Hare's checklist and how that's sort of the gold standard. But there's a more recent model of psychopathy called the triarchic model of psychopathy. And this was developed by Christopher Patrick in 2009. He wrote what is by now no, a very well-known article in, in academic circles. It's called The Triarchic Conceptualization of Psychopathy. And Patrick argues that there's it's triarchic. That means three. So he argues that there's really three components of psychopathy. Those three main components are meanness, disinhibition, which would be impulsiveness, and fearlessness, or he calls it fearless dominance or sometimes boldness, fearlessness and boldness would be similar. We talked about in one of our previous podcasts, Lori's propensity towards fearless dominance. She does tend to be fairly bold and fearless in many things and many of her decisions. We've talked about her being impulsive, but for our purposes today, I want to focus on the meanness one. Okay. So meanness in the psychopathy literature, meanness is often also called callousness or 
It's, it's sometimes referred to as CU, which is callousness, unemotionality, unemotional. Mm. Oh, and, interesting. And so this this trait, by the way, this meanness trait is oftentimes, according to the current research we know on psychopathy, the biggest predictor in children of later adult psychopathy. So children that have this callous, unemotional trait, otherwise called meanness, are at much higher risk to become psychopaths as adults. Hmm. So I, I think this is really a, a critical variable in thinking about psychopathy. I'm going to read, this is page 927. This is from the Patrick article, his original article on the triarchic model, which by the way, has received a lot of research support over the last decade. Here's what he, here's how he defines meanness. The term mean describes a constellation of phenotypic attributes, including deficient empathy, disdain for, and lack of close attachments with others, rebelliousness, excitement seeking, exploitativeness, and empowerment through cruelty. So I want us to keep in mind this last part here, empowerment through cruelty. That's going to be, that's going to be an important component of our discussion coming up here. Okay. Empowerment through cruelty. So two friends of Lori's are interviewed here with a similar story. Anything else that you could think of that's important, I guess, now knowing that, we're, that, that we have all these criminal investigations going that you overheard then that, like I said, you might have written it off, but you go, oh, man, now that all this is happening, that's weird or bizarre. Or... In June, when we saw her after she'd been gone a couple of months, when I say we, Christine and I okay. got together with her, um, she had said that, and Christine would be able to recall, I don't even take ibuprofen, so I have no understanding of medicine or anything of that nature. Okay. But there was some sort of, I think it was a medicine of some sort, and I don't know if it was something Charles took or if it was something that maybe was another medication that JJ took. Okay. I know JJ took quite a bit of medicine. Yeah. It's different um, issues. But she had said that she had been putting um, whatever this was into, I think, a smoothie or some sort of drink for Charles when she was in Texas. Okay. Last month. What's going on? Um, the day that I was telling you about the last time I seen Lori that I went out to visit with her, it wasn't just about her brother. I remember that she made a comment about crushing up some of her son's, um, what's it called? It sounded like both her husband and her son took it. And starts the X, I think. Um, give me one second. My brain. It's for Xanax. Xanax. Xanax is what it was. Okay. Yeah. yeah you know what? Um. Um. Oh, dude. Dear. Who? Uh, sorry about that. Who told me that? I can't remember if it was. I think it was. Nicole. You mean Melanie? Yeah, no, Nicole no, said, okay. hey, yeah, because she said I was there. She said Christina and I were there. So she had said, okay. and that was, she couldn't remember the medication, but she said that she told both yeah. of you guys. And that was when so when that they was, were back in Texas, right? Yes. So okay. when I went back over, I, I just said, look, I'm kind of, I'm, I don't know what's going on with you, but anyway, my one, cons 
my one thing was the way that her brother had talked, but realizing also she'd made a comment about putting some Xanax in his, like, drink mix, like his protein milk, like okay. shake or something that he was taking. Okay. And so I said, Lori, are you serious? Did you actually do that? She's like, well, I could only put, like, maybe one or two in because it's, it's obvious, but I just, he's so hyper and so on top of me. And she's like, I was just being a smart aleck, and it's really not a big deal. And he takes it all the time anyway. And Gotcha. Okay. So I don't know because she kind of backpedaled on it if if he really did take it too. Like, I don't know. But it sounded like both he and JJ took Xanax. Okay. Good. That's that's perfect. I was trying to... I, I, I forgot to follow up with you on that. Yeah. So that was all I could remember from that. Surprised I didn't that day, but... Not a problem. I remember a couple hours after you left. <laughs> yeah, I, I just happened upon your doorstep, and, and it was uh, random and out of the blue. So not a problem, but I appreciate you calling and following up with me. So according to two friends, uh, Nicole and Christina, Lori would drug Charles Vallow's smoothies with Xanax. The reason we're starting with this particular example is because it's proof. This is definitive proof. I know in the second interview, she said that Lori sort of backtrack on that, but. Yeah. Christina said, well, she was like, it's not a big deal. Just one or two. Right. But yeah. so, but let's, let's dig into this for a second. Like it is a big deal. It is a big deal because Lori is introducing a controlled substance without consent and unknowingly into Charles drinks that by any statute, is a crime. It's not only a crime, it's a felony. In most states, it's punishable by up to five years in prison. So why is this important? Because two people are saying that she's doing this. Lori doesn't see it as a big deal because Lori wants to control his behavior. Whatever her justification is, it doesn't matter. This is criminal behavior. She's introducing a controlled substance. Let's call it poison because Charles doesn't know he's taking these drinks. She's essentially poisoning Charles. Here we have this idea of empowerment through cruelty. This is where we're getting it, right? Because she feels empowered. She's controlling his behavior. She potentially has his life in her hands. She could easily create a situation where he overdoses. She could easily create a situation where she essentially murders him, whether knowingly or not. And so I don't see any other way of saying that that's cruel. When you poison people, there's a sadistic component in the sense that you're really, you're negatively affecting someone's behavior and emotional state and mental state deliberately through a controlled substance. And so I, I think this is a great instance of this trait of meanness that we're, we're going we're gonna to start to explore here. This is a never heard before story told by Larry Woodcock. Uh, when he was at our house um, two years ago this month, April, two years ago this month, we have not shared this until this moment. So let's take a listen to what Larry Woodcock has to say. I'm going to give y'all a little bit of insight that is absolutely not known to anybody. 
two people know it. The last one of the last times we went to Hawaii, um, and the day we left, uh, Laurie had fixed a fruit salad. I love fruit salads. I loved her fruit salad, and and she knew it because uh, I told her I said you you just absolutely make one of the best fruit salads I've ever had. And when Kay just said what she said, uh, I I'm, I was immediately drawn to this the statement I'm fixing to make. When we left Hawaii that morning, or that evening, we boarded the plane, plane took off, and uh, about halfway through the trip, I woke up and I told Kay, I, I'm dying. Now, I've, been, I've, I've had enough people die in front of me, die in my arms, you know, around me that's died. I know, in general, the symptoms of that. And I truly believed in my heart that I was dying. I was going to die there on that plane. Well, Kay kept telling, you know, the stewardess and, and, and everybody, we got to do something. I said, no, just leave me alone. Just leave me alone. We made the trip into Vegas. As we were walking down the corridor to get our luggage and the people mover, uh, on the escalator, I just got so sick, and I honestly, in my in my heart, I I thought I was going to die right there, and then I started throwing up. Kay had bought a, I had a brand new Saints, Saints cap, cap a ball cap that I had worn one time, and it was in my bag. And here we are on a people mover. And so Larry said, I'm going to throw up. And I said, well, he said, give me something to throw up in. And I just opened my bag and, and he grabbed that hat out of it. And he threw up in my new Saints hat. And I filled and, it up. <laughs> and, and then when we got off the people mover, then we just threw it away. But anyway. But I, I, I'm wondering, and I've, and I've wondered this since it happened to us, because you and I talked about it. And I even asked Kay one time, I said, do you think she was trying to kill me? And Kay naturally said, no, I don't I mean for what reason. But uh, why would she want to kill me? And I've always in my heart since that time, since the day we were on that escalator, and, then Kay, and as I said, Kay and I talked about this, I, I just wondered if maybe in hindsight, and my point in, in saying what I just said, um, my point is you, I tried to figure, well, what would she gain out of it by, having, by doing something with me? If, if that was her temp, what would she gain out of it? But she and Kay were so close. One of the things that I've always tried to do is figure what angle would she use, where would she go with that? Why me? I mean, as far as I knew, uh, she thought that I was, you know, her her bestie, and and from everything Kay has told me, that.
uh, that Laurie has told her that, you know, oh, she thought sun, I was ro uh, rose and setting rose on Larry every day. Yeah. I mean, she just thought and, that uh, much of him. I, I think, uh, I mean, first of all, thanks for sharing that story. It is remarkable. Um, and I'm, I'm probably never going to forget the, the saint's hat as long as I live. Did, did you get the hat replaced? Or did, did you oh. did, did you throw it out? <laughs> you did. You got. Did you bribe? You No. Okay. I was gonna say yeah. I think that that no, hat, that, that, that hat wasn't salvageable. It was not salvageable. <laughs> I loaded that hat down, and it, it, it was fruits and uh, and. But I, I can tell you, I've never been poisoned, and and uh, so I, I can't, I don't have any personal experience. And but, and in in looking at in retrospect of everything that has happened, maybe she in her in her mind, maybe she did have come up with a reason to. But I can't imagine what it would be. So I, I think. Um... If I were to offer a professional um, perspective on that, I think you don't need reasons if that's true, if she was trying to kill you. In other words, she's not sitting down and saying, you know, she doesn't have a pro and con list when she's poisoning your food. She's just thinking, Larry looked at me funny this morning. I am so angry at him or I'm tired of him. Or maybe she, maybe she took something you said as a criticism or a slight. Like it doesn't... It doesn't have to be as, as, it can be as simple as that. Like there's no, I know it's, it's for, for normal, rational human beings, we want reasons. We want, we want to say, she's killing me for money. But with somebody like Lori, there's no reasons. It could be a very, it could have been something that you just had no clue about. Well, look, and, and thinking back through all of this, I think one of the things that I never put up with Laurie's bullshit. That would be a reason. And, and uh, now I, I respect her because she had JJ. And, and uh, but all this trying to convince our granddaughter that she needed to be uh, part of this cult and, and wanted her to start reading books that Chad wrote. Oh, she did. Yes. So, and and maybe, okay. the, the, uh, maybe for some reason, because I didn't go along with, with her, her beliefs, and I was, I never hid that from her, because I don't think she, I think she totally ex understood that her BS was not going to work with me, and and I would call her out on to it, but. I think maybe that's part of it. I don't know. I've tried, to, like you said, those type of people don't need a reason. Up until just a minute, a few minutes ago, there's only two people that knew about this, came myself. And I will, without a doubt, still in my heart believe that there was something trying to be committed because I've been sick. I know what it is to be sick. I know right. what it is to be afraid. And I can tell you, I was praying that that I, I didn't want to die on an airplane. 
This is way before Chad Daybell, this story. So here we have another instance of potential poisoning. Do we know for sure that that's what Lori no. was trying to do here? We don't because it was fruit. And of course, we all know that fruit can go bad and it can create problems. But Larry seemed pretty convinced that this was way beyond fruit, that this was this had to do with poisoning. He was he he would have had no reason, by the way, to go to the hospital, or he he couldn't go to the hospital. He was on a plane, he but yeah, he was on an airplane. He had no really had no motivation to to get blood work done to see if this was poisoning because it he, didn't occur point, to him. Then. Right yeah, at that point, that he trusted Lori. But looking back now that we know what he did to Charles, that she clearly poisoned his drinks, his smoothies. It seems to me like this this is a pattern that we're starting to see that this story, if this was a poisoning attempt, again, we can't prove it, but let's, let's say that it was, this gets in, this gets into that quality of meanness. This gets into that callous, unemotional trait of empowerment through cruelty. I love that term because I think that really captures it. This is about Lori feeling empowered. If we talk about we that talk would be about, a reason. In other words, that would right, be a, a motive, reason. A motive, right. If we talk about this idea of psychic death or the empty self or a false self, then this is an attempt to transform that sense of victimization and helplessness through poisoning to feel more empowered. And that's what she's doing. Well, so this is um, about Tylee. This is Nancy Grace. Um, I'll put the link to this video in the description as well if anyone wants to go see this. So this is Nancy Grace interviewing Lori's friend from Hawaii, April Raymond. And they're discussing Tylee. We had um, a lot of uh, health issues, and they could never really get to the bottom of them. What kind of health problems that the doctors couldn't figure out? Tylee was always sick and she would be in her room resting or sleeping or recovering or just getting back from the doctor. When she was younger, I, they told me that she had had several surgeries to try to figure out what was wrong and to try to fix things and it, it never accomplished anything. Was Lori Vallow primarily involved in Tylee's treatments? Yes. If a fleet of doctors in a metropolitan city can't figure out what's wrong and cult mom Lori Vallow was the primary person taking care of her, I'd be very, very curious to find the true nature of Tylee Ryan's ailments and if they were somehow inflicted on her. And would right. Lori Vallow be there alone with her at the time she began manifesting the pain and when the pain would go away? And what, if any, attention would Lori Vallow receive when Tylee would be ill? This is the first time hearing of this, and I'm very, very distressed. Well, we're hearing this from between April and Nancy Grace. I have We have heard from several people about Tylee always being sick and in the hospital. We've seen photos of her in the hospital. This is, uh, most of you that follow this case know this is a very repeated 
story. Exactly. And there's diagnoses, there are multiple diagnoses of pancreatitis, which it seems in these diagnoses to have no clear cause. So the question here becomes, and this is from, by the way, this is from a Guardian ad litem report to the court, July 15th, 2009. I'm just going to quote this. In the same period of time, Tylee was age six. She was diagnosed with pancreatitis, having had two episodes requiring hospitalization between February of 2006 and 2008. So there's clear documentation of pancreatitis and many other ailments, back pains, that are unex- that are inexplicable that have no clear cause this raises the question of whether this is some version of factitious disorder imposed on another otherwise previously known as Munchausen's by proxy syndrome i think that's the issue that april and nancy grace are raising here too right they're they're questioning whether lori is poisoning or introducing a substance into tylee's drinks or food? And is is that responsible for all her physical ailments? My short answer to that is we don't know for sure. But again, we're looking at here we go. Where Larry Woodcock almost dies from what he believes is poisoning. We know for sure that he's she's introducing controlled substances into Charles drinks. We have inexplicable reasons for Tylee's illnesses. Right, you have all of these elements are coming together. And let me and let me add one more: a testimony of JJ's last babysitter in Rexburg, who she said that Lori told her that she could give JJ Benadryl to help him sleep. Yeah, and and let me. This is from this is from an affidavit written by uh, filed in the courts by Cheryl Wheeler. I'm just going to quote, we're just going to do, I'm just going to do a quick quote on this. Um, There's a couple things in this affidavit I want to point out. One is a quote from one of her sons. I'm not going to mention the name of her son because Cheryl has gone to great lengths to try to protect the identity and privacy of her kids. So, but uh, here's a quote from one of Cheryl's kids. He was, I believe around 12 years old at the time. He says, quote, Lori gave us all kinds of those green Advil slash NyQuil and Lunesta pills so we could go to bed early. They practically shoved it down our throat. Also in that affidavit, she talks about that there is a diagnosis in one of the health reports of one of the Valo children. I'm not going to mention name again here, but... There's an actual diagnosis in a chart pertaining to this particular situation that Cheryl says, the quote, quote the quoting states that the application indicate, indicates Munchausen syndrome by proxy. So a doctor that they dealt with to deal with a lot of medical problems back then that was treating one of the children, again, I'm not going to say who the child is, but one of the and children. And this, this was a skin rash, by the way, a skin rash. Yeah, skin rash. One of the children in the household was having some problems and the child gets diagnosed because the causes are so vague and so nebulous, gets diagnosed with Munchausen's by proxy syndrome. 
now we call it factitious disorder imposed on another, but, but the, so there is, there is actual evidence in a medical chart, I believe today, as we speak of a diagnosis pertaining to Lori of Munchausen's by proxy syndrome. So can I, can I say something about this really quickly too? Um, because I reached out to Cheryl. Yep. Many people have seen this affidavit. It's, it's floated around, uh, the, the web. Um, it refers to Lori and Charles, um, concerns Cheryl had, but I, so I, I reached out to her for clarification. Um, and she, and she stated this and, and I just want to say this too, because I, I asked her, I was like, is this Lori and Charles help me out here? Like what, you know, she said, I believe this was only Laurel, Lori. This is from Cheryl Wheeler to us. And, and she said that I could share this. I believe it was only Laura, Lori. Charles just didn't think like this during our marriage. I was the primary caretaker. I am not complaining about that. But Charles would have naturally defaulted to Lori's style of mothering and then add that, uh, and, then, and then she some personal stuff that I won't share. And then she said that, um, I know that you understand the affidavit was during a custody battle. This custody battle would not have even been brought up if it were not for Lori's involvement in my children's life. So the custody battle was only happening because Lori entered her children's life, according to Cheryl Wheeler. So I want to share that too. Go ahead, John. Right. That, that all of these, again, so the main point is that all of these physical ailments and health problems started when Lori enters the picture. Right. Charles may have been involved in some of that indirectly, but but it's not, but the, the cause is Lori, that Lori is the driver and the impetus for all these physical ailments. Prior to Lori, there were no issues with the kids at all with Charles. Right. So I think that's... It's important to note. Right. That's the important point. I'm going to read a quote here. This is from a book on Munchausen's. This is, by the way, a really fascinating book on Munchausen's. There's not a lot of great books written about uh, Munchausen syndrome by proxy, but this is called Hurting for Love. Munchausen's by proxy syndrome. It's by Schreier and Lebeau. It, it was also, I believe, written in the 90s. Let me give you the exact date here, 1993. Here's what they say about Munchausen's by proxy syndrome. This is page 95. They, meaning mothers, often mothers, they seize the opportunity afforded by the birth of a child to actively relate to and control physicians by amplifying a minor ailment in their children or inducing an illness in their infants. In so doing, they try to maintain an intense yet distant, perverse, and ambivalent relationship with a powerfully loved and powerfully feared paternal representative. As we will demonstrate, the physician comes to represent a second chance at a long-for relationship with the father. But the fear of yet another abandonment is equally, if not more, powerful. What these, what these case studies suggest is that the good 
Munchausen's by proxy syndrome mother is a masquerade of mothering that springs from childhood roots that were quietly traumatic, include a profound absence of recognition of the child who will become a Munchausen's by proxy syndrome mother. Many of, many of these young girls, she, and so she's referring to before their mothers. Okay. Many of these young girls feel neglected and desperate for approval and recognition. Hmm. So their argument, the author's argument is that Munchausen's is a function of, interestingly enough, the desire for paternal love. No doubt Lori had a lot of conflict with her father. And so it's interesting that there is that element, or at least in the case studies that they evaluate, they believe there's that element. And the the main payoff is attention and recognition, but specifically the attention and recognition of the father. Hmm. So I, th- I think you have, and, and also previous neglect, trauma, childhood trauma. So I think you have, potentially you have a lot of those elements in this particular case. The thing that I really started thinking about after reading that book, by the way, is this idea of triangulation. We talked about this with Murdoch, how I've talked about the family therapist, Murray Bowen, who says that the basic unit in a family is a triangle. So when there's problems between two members in a family, often a third member will be brought in to diffuse the conflict, to take the heat down. And... With with Tylee, I think Tylee plays that role to a very large extent in this family that Tylee's always brought in to diffuse conflicts between other people. That Tylee becomes this pawn of sorts. And I mean it, it's sad. It's sad, but 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 I think there's this attempt by Lori to triangulate Tylee, who she's very conflicted about, by the way. Lori detests Joe Ryan. And unfortunately, Tylee is the daughter of Joe Ryan. So I think in some ways, Tylee suffers by association with Joe Ryan. I think Lori has this constant approach avoidance relationship with Tylee in the sense that she wants to be close to her, but then she gets angry at her because she associates her with Joe Ryan. So I, I, I think that if there is... Munchausen's in this particular case, or factitious disorder, it has something to do with that dynamic. That she feels a great deal of love and dependency towards Tylee, but she also wants to punish her because of her association with Joe Ryan. So I think the poisoning is an attempt to keep Tylee close because she's sick all the time and Tylee needs her. There's a dependency, but it's also an attempt to inflict harm on Tylee because she represents that association to Joe Ryan. So it's sort of this, I love you, but I'm going to punish you type relationship. And it's also, I think, applicable to her hospital stays that I think there's this interesting dynamic that this book points out that the physician gets triangulated. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd be really curious to know if there's a consistent physician who's treating Tylee that Lori is interested in or attracted to, right? That would make this even more fascinating because now Lori is showing up with a physician who she can't really have a relationship with. She's married. 
But yet there's this fantasy of, of paternal love that she gets to go to this physician and it's, it's sort of risk-free in the sense that she's around this physician all the time. I presume it would be a male in that case. She gets to be seen as this really good mother because she's always bringing her daughter in for attention. And yet at the same time, she's inflicting suffering and pain on her daughter by poisoning her and nobody can figure out what's going on. Really? I mean, pancreatitis might be a valid diagnosis, but that's questionable. Or even, I mean, not just attention from a doctor though, right? Attention from her family. Tylee's sick again. Tylee's in the hospital. Everyone knows Lori's there being a good mother. Charles right. is on his own, you know, taking care of JJ or, you know, before or after Charles, uh, you know, this, everybody knows where she is. Uh, people are coming to visit Tylee and Lori. She's, she's getting that attention, that recognition. Right. Yeah. And so the, the main motivations I think for, for Munchausen's would be attention and recognition and the poisoning component of that would be empowerment. The Lori has this secret sense of empowerment that she's in control that she is punishing Tylee. And I'm not saying that's conscious, by the way. I think the way she's punishing Tylee here is she knows she's potentially, and again, I don't know for sure if this is true, but she knows potentially that she's harming her and punishing her through through medication or poison, whatever she's giving her. But she also knows that she's going to get a positive payoff from that, as you said, from, from attention, but, but, but she's in control of the situation. This is her drama. She's in control from start to finish. And that's an important piece of this too, I think. Right. Letter to the courts from uh, Mary Vogel. This is from February 28th, 2008. And so people understand Mary Vogel was the ad litem. She took the place of Tom Ware. So Tom Ware, um, the ad litem of Tylee's was um, released from the case and Mary Vogel came in. Here's what Mary says, February 28th, 2008. She's talking about the relationship, the custody battle for Tylee. She says, this is a pattern that has continued to spiral Tylee's life into a dramatic and destructive situation that I do think is harmful and have outlined in previous letters to, and reports to the court. If these events and situations persist, I believe that it becomes more and more possible to overlook something truly dangerous or exaggerate something that is manipulative in nature. It is a dangerous pattern. So the Mary Fogo, the guardian ad litem to Tylee, is essentially telling the courts that she thinks that Lori Vallow at the time, that Lori Vallow is more than capable of creating harm to another human being. Yes. They don't hey, know and you don't know. You don't know what I've been through and you don't even give a crap what they've been through. Nobody does. I don't except for me. I'm the one that knows. I am the one that was in the hospital with Tylee for hundreds of days watching her suffer. Tylee is free now from all the pains of her life. I sat there while she cried and I held back her hair while she threw up. And I am the only person on this earth who knows how much Tylee suffered in her life. She had pain every single day. She never felt good 